Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you again. My name is John Lichumati, and today we're going to be continuing our look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll be picking up where we left off. Last time we looked at John 1, 11, where we see that the Word of God, Jesus, He came to those who were His own, referring to the Israelites, the Jews, God's covenant people. He came to them, and yet, John says, they rejected Him. But now we see in verses 12 and 13 that not all Jews, and indeed many people who are outside the Jewish people, they did receive Jesus. John says they believed upon his name. And so today we're going to be looking at these two verses, John 1, verses 12 and 13. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. And as you do so, also grab a pen and paper. It's always great to be able to take notes because I encourage you, as you listen to God's Word, as you sit under its authority, that God, I know He will speak to you. And so take notes, and that way, when the sermon is done, you can reflect on what you've heard and the message and what you see in God's Word and pray. And so to that end, I encourage you to take notes. Now let me pray for us as we dive in. Father God, I thank you for your word to us. I, I'm so excited about these two verses, and I pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And God, I ask that as you give us your word here this morning in John 1, 12, and 13, that we would see Christ more clearly in his glory, and that we behold his beauty, his majesty, his sovereignty, the, his, his supremacy over all things, and that this would move us more greatly to worship him, to give our lives to him. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, these two verses that we're looking at today are jam-packed with great truth, and so I want to dive right in. I'm going to begin in verse 11, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as you see by reading these three verses together, John is setting up a contrast. In verse 11, he says that the Jews, by and large, have rejected their Messiah. They've rejected their Savior. They've rejected their God. But, John says, not all. Some Jews, John himself was one of them, and many who were not Jewish did not reject Jesus. In fact, they received him. John says they believed upon his name. So John is describing essentially what happened when Jesus came and that some people received him and believed in him. And he's one of them. And his whole gospel, of course, is presented in such a way that he wants you, the reader, to be one of those people who believe in him, who, who trust in him for salvation. And so here John shows us thematically this incredible paradox of the Jewish people who by and large reject their own Messiah, but many people who don't, who receive him and who believe in him. And the whole gospel is going to present this tension between many Jewish people who reject their own God, who reject Jesus, but, but some among the Jews and many non-Jews who do receive him and who believe in him. And so what's, what I want to focus on this morning, though, is in these two verses, we see three radical truths, and it's easy to gloss over them, and so I want to unpack those truths for us this morning. Now, the first one we see is this. John says that those who received Jesus, who believed in his name, that Jesus, the word, that he gave them the right to become children of God. Now, we might miss this, but what John is saying here is actually quite profound. 
Because he's not just saying Jesus is the giver of salvation in the sense that Jesus died for us on the cross. You see, many of us, when we use the language of I'm saved by grace through faith or I'm saved by Jesus or believe in Jesus for salvation, we usually mean that in reference to Jesus' death. We say, and this is absolutely true, it's part of the gospel, that because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I can be saved. And so we often link Jesus together with salvation in a functional sense. Jesus died for us on the cross. But friends, the New Testament, and here in John's Gospel, they have a much bigger perspective of what it means that Jesus saves. A much bigger perspective of what it means that Jesus gives salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not only in Jesus' death on the cross, it's not only in his functional role as our atoning sacrifice that we are saved by Jesus. We are also saved by Jesus, John is saying right here in verse 12, because Jesus himself is God. And in the same way that the God that we see in the Old Testament, Yahweh, is the sovereign Lord over creation and over redemption, in the same way that Yahweh in the Old Testament is supreme over salvation in those texts, Jesus, as God, is also supreme over salvation for us. Now, we see that here in several ways. First of all, we see it when John says that the Word of God, Jesus, that He gives the right to become children of God. What is He saying here? He is saying that every single person who is saved, every single person who is given entryway into God's family, they're given entryway purely by the sovereign discretion of of Jesus. That's exactly what this means. It says, John says, who, who, whoever receives him and who believes in his name, that he gives them the right, the privilege to become children of God. Now, don't miss this. What John is saying here is your faith, anything you do or anything that's, that is, is inherent to who you are, none of that saves you. Even faith itself is not the ground of your salvation. Nothing in you and nothing we do beholdens God to save us. Jesus is the one who grants us that right. How do we get entrance into the kingdom of God? How do we get entrance into salvation? How do we get entrance into God's family? John says right here, we get entrance into God's family because Jesus sovereignly, freely gives it to us. How do we get the right to become children of God? Is it something we get because we're born of a certain nationality or because we live a certain way or because we pray to a certain prayer? No, because all of those things would root salvation in something I do, and they would all make God beholden to me. But that is not what John is saying here. He's saying that God is beholden to no one. Jesus is beholden to no one. Jesus is the supreme, sovereign giver of salvation. Now, this is a profound and radical truth for you and for me. And really, it changes every... If we get a, if we get a picture of Jesus here, it's not just the functionary of our salvation, not just the one who died for our sins, but as the one who, as God, is sovereign, is supreme over the whole redemptive process. It changes our view of Jesus. You know, many of us, we, we, we tend to think of Jesus only in those terms of, of dying on the cross. But the New Testament, and John here, presents a much 
bigger view of the way that Jesus saves us. Now, in addition to this language of Jesus giving us the right to become children of God, we also see this bigger view of of Jesus' sovereignty and salvation in that John says that it is not just those who believe, but those who believe upon his name. Why does he use that phrase? Why not just say to those who believe? It's because in, in, in John's context, to believe upon the name of someone is specifically to give that person, to ascribe to them supremacy, authority. To, so in, in an ancient political context, the emperor would have said, believe upon me, trust in me. There was emperor worship in the Roman world. And they said to the Roman citizens, to the people of the Roman Empire, trust in me. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I am looking out for your best interest. Believe upon the name of Caesar. John is saying, he's using that same language to point to Jesus as the supreme divine authority for salvation. Not just for soteriological reasons, not just in terms of believing upon Jesus to get to get eternal life, but to believe upon Jesus as the supreme Lord of the cosmos. He is the one, We all through John 1, we're seeing this, he is the one who is God. So we trust in his name not just to get salvation, we trust in his name because of who he is. He is the supreme sovereign over all the earth. This is a massive view of Jesus. John's gospel through and through holds up for us an exalted Jesus that is much bigger than just a person who came to die on a cross. He is the divine Yahweh, the God of all creation. Now he, let's be very clear, he is not alone God. John makes it very clear in the very beginning. He was with God in the beginning. He was God. John presents for us a triune God in his gospel. And we'll see that here with the Holy Spirit in just a few minutes. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's the God that whenever you see the word God in John's gospel, he's referring to the triune God. But he wants to make it clear that Jesus is no less God than God the Father. Inasmuch as God the Father is the author of creation, Jesus is the enactor of God's the Father's will. And so John wants us to see this exalted, divine, sovereign Jesus. You see, each person of the triune Godhead, and we'll we'll unpack this a little bit more in, in, in a minute, each person of the triune Godhead is no less God than the other two persons in the Godhead. They are one in in substance, one God, and they have unique roles in creation, but nothing in the Godhead is is more or greater than, than, than another person. They all contain the same level of the divinity, of deity, as one another. So Jesus is no less God than God the Father, and the Spirit is no less God than God the Son and God the Father. All three are one in substance. All three are divine. So John wants us to see very much in light of the Old Testament, if you go back and you read, for example, the book of Exodus, that Jesus is not just the functional giver of salvation in that he dies for us on the cross. He is God, and he is supreme and sovereign over all of redemption, over all of salvation. Now this, friends, this, if we get a hold of this view of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes the whole nature of our faith. If we get this magnificent, 
cosmic, big view of who Jesus is. He becomes much more for us than just the one who died on a cross. He becomes our Lord. He becomes the focus of our worship, our joy, our delight. You know, to give you one picture of this, of, of what happens to your faith when you get this view of Jesus, there's a song that Sandra McCracken wrote uh, called Steadfast. And I'm going to read you the lyrics, and I want you to think about what John is saying here in 1.12 about Jesus as the supreme, d- d- divine giver of salvation. Listen to these words and see how she flips our tendency to view our faith as all about us and what we do. She makes it all about God and what He does. She says, here are the lyrics, I will build my house, whether storm or drought, on the rock that does not move. I will set my hope in your love, O Lord, and your faithfulness will prove you are steadfast, steadfast. By the words you spoke, all the starry host are called out by name each night. In your watchful care, I will rest secure. As you lead us with your light, you are steadfast, steadfast. I will not trust in the strength of kings. On your promise, I will stand. I will shout for joy. I will raise my voice. Hallelujah to the Lamb. You are steadfast, steadfast. In the moment of emptiness, all was fulfilled. In the hour of darkness, your light was revealed. In the presence of death, your life was affirmed. In the absence of holiness, you are still God. You are steadfast, steadfast. You are steadfast, steadfast. Now, the God that Sandra is describing here, this is the God of John 1, 12. It is the God who not only died for your sins on the cross, but the God who is the supreme and sovereign Lord over all creation, whom you can trust in today and all days of your life to take care of you. See, this is the beauty of seeing the supremacy of Christ, that you don't just have a God who died for you on a cross and who is now in heaven and leaves you to figure out life on your own. You have a God who is supreme in your life today, who is your shepherd, who will take care of you, who you can trust in and look to in your time of need. This magnificent cosmic view of Jesus will ground your faith for a life of walking with God and of beholding more and more his bigness, his glory, his beauty, his majesty. And that is the whole essence of salvation and the whole essence of being walking in God's image. Friends, this is a beautiful truth, and we don't want to miss it here. But what's amazing is there's still two more truths to look at. And so I want to go to the next one, which we see at the very beginning of this verse in in one twelve, when John says, to all who believe in him, to all who received him, that he gave them this right. To whom does Jesus sovereignly, freely give the right to become children of God? To, to whom is it, is it given that they can believe in him and have this privilege, have this right? Is it to a certain group of people, a certain kind of person, a certain ethnicity, or a certain anything? Absolutely not. John says it is to all, to everyone who believes in Jesus, to all who receive him without qualification, without distinction, to all who do so, they get this right. They get this right privilege to become the children of God. Now, this is an incredibly profound truth. And even more so when you think about John's Jewish background. 
there's a very clear understanding at this time when John's writing in Judaism of a hierarchy of those who were closest to God, of those who had access to God, and those who didn't. At the very bottom of this hierarchy were Gentiles. They were under God's judgment. They were under God's condemnation. So therefore, they were looked down upon and reviled as being outside of God's special people. God didn't choose them. God chose the Jews. This was the mindset of many Jews at the time of Jesus, that the Jews were special, the Jews were distinct, the Jews were above all these other peoples who did things and engaged in activities that God condemned and judged. And so if you were a a Gentile, then you were at the very bottom most and you resided under God's condemnation. Now, one step up from that would be Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They were called proselytes. Now, these people, according to Jewish custom and, and, and religion, these people could consider themselves benefit, benefactors of God's covenant blessings, but only the very bottom-most level, as indicated by the fact that at the temple itself, the temple in Jerusalem that was a center point of Jewish worship, it was structured such in a way that there were levels of uh, different courts going closer and closer into the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's glory was to dwell. So there were courts, that, the, the kind of like concentric circles, that moved closer and closer into that Holy of Holies, that, that, that centermost place. The outermost court of the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the court where a, a, a proselyte, a, a convert from the Gentile um, peoples who had become a Jew, who had undergone all the extensive rituals, including circumcision if you're a male, and all the other, and, and adopted the, the, the dietary laws and all the other things, if you'd done all of those things, but you were a Gentile by blood, then you could only come to that outermost court. And if you read just a few chapters from now in, in, in John's gospel well, you, uh, about the, 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 the temple, when Jesus goes there, what he finds in the Gentile court is this, that the Jews have set up a marketplace there and they're buying and selling animals to be sacrificed in the temple and they're exchanging money. So there's commotion, there's people all around. And Jesus, that's when he turns over the tables of the money changers and, he's, and he kicks out the animals. And he tells them all that they've turned God's house into a house of robbery. Now, the point here is that this shows us what Jewish people, ethnic, ethnically speaking, thought of even the Gentile converts to Judaism. They completely disregarded them. They are, were completely unimportant when it came to worshiping God. And this is what incensed Jesus so much. So at the very bottommost layer were Gentiles who were completely outside of God's covenant blessings and were under God's judgment and condemnation and looked down upon by the Jews. To eat with a Gentile would have been seen as to as dirtying yourself as a, as a Jewish person. And then above them, one rank above was a Jewish convert. And they might be looked upon with respect and they, might, they would be welcomed in the, into the synagogue, but there was very clear understanding that they were the bottom most and the outside layer of those who could be considered part of God's people. And then you move one layer in, and in the temple, for example, you have the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court that was completely disrespected by the Jewish people by and large. And then within that, though, you had the court of women. And Jewish women were allowed into this court. And this was the area where they could go and they could congregate. Now, uh, what had happened in Judaism by this point is that they had 
corrupted and twisted God's teachings, God's created order about men being the head and men um, being uh, responsible for the family and men being the spiritual leaders of their home. And they had corrupted that into a very sexist attitude towards women. If you read what some of the rabbis were saying about women at the time, it is nothing but sinful sexism. And so Jesus himself even engages with a little bit of this when some come to them, when someone comes to him and asks him about divorce. Because at this time, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus was alive, there was a debate within Judaism itself over what constituted permissible divorce. And there was a whole camp within Judaism that said, essentially, if your wife does anything that displeases you, you can divorce her. This is coming from Jewish leaders, from Jewish religious people. If your wife burns your food, then she has broken the covenant marriage and you have every right to get a divorce from her. That was a whole camp within Judaism that was teaching that. But if you read other writings as well, you see that there was a significant amount of sexism and, 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 distress and sinful treatment of women at the time. And so, that, and so here you see within Judaism this, this distinction. You have the Gentiles, then the proselytes, and then you have women. And then, of course, you have Jewish men. And by and large, Jewish culture at the time elevated the status of Jewish men. They were the, 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 the model exemplar, if you will, of, of Judaism. They were the, the, the goal, the standard, the, the model. And, and they were held up as the, the supreme example of, of God's righteous people were these Jewish men. And, and there was a court where the, 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 the men who were Jewish could go beyond the court of the Gentiles, beyond the court of women, into the court for, for men, and they could, they could do their sacrifices. And then, of course, at the center most in terms of human hierarchy would be the priestly class and the religious scholars like the Pharisees. But what I want you to see is that the Jewish mind at the time, and John had come out of Judaism, was very much about a hierarchy of closeness to God, about who God preferred over others. Now, this was a corruption of biblical teaching. Okay, Biblical teaching does teach men as the head of the house, men as the spiritual leaders in the home, but it doesn't teach this kind of sexist, sinful hierarchy within, within, within humanity of those who can enjoy closeness to God. And so Jesus... He, he brings people back to the essential ingredient of those who are close to God, which is faith. It is belief in God that unites all of those people who are God's people. So when John here says in one twelve that it is those who receive Jesus who believe upon his name, to all of them, they have, they're given the right to become children of God. This isn't a new statement. This is Old Testament prophet language. But what is new is, of course, it's centered around Jesus, and that this was a nonetheless a radical claim from the day and age of Judaism, but even more broadly than Judaism and Jewish culture was Roman culture. Roman culture was heavily hierarchical. At the very top, you had Roman men, and then you had uh, women and, and free people, and then you had gradations going all the way down to slaves. There was a significant number of slaves all throughout the Roman Empire. There were usually those who had been survivors of some war where, where, where the Romans had gone in and conquered some people. In fact, there's, there's a record where Julius Caesar himself, after winning some battle in, in Gaul, which is modern-day France, uh, where he, he basically sends about 53,000 of the region's inhabitants, all of them, into slavery. 
there was a significant number of slaves in the Roman world. And of course, there, there was teachings about re- valuing your slaves and taking care of them, but we all know the reality was, if you were a slave, you were treated as little better than dirt on the ground. The Roman world was a harsh world, a brutal world. Lots of sexism, lots of social status and hierarchies within the Roman world, just as there is today. How radical, then, are John's words here, that to all who believe Jesus himself, God himself, gives them the right to become the children of God. And if you know what this word is in Greek, that's translated here as right, or maybe authority in your translation, when you know what this word is in Greek, it's even more astonishing because the word is exousia. And it's the same word used by Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 in the Great Commission when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and baptize in my name and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That word authority that Jesus uses is the exact same Greek word. Now I can tell you that in Roman society at the time, there were very few people who could ever have this word positively ascribed to them. Very few people in the Roman world could have the word exousia, authority, right, power, ascribed to them in a positive way. And here John is saying is that the greatest privilege, the greatest authority, the greatest right a human being could ever possess, that of being a child of God, is freely given by Jesus to all those who believe in him. Every Roman slave, every Gentile woman, every Jewish person, all had the same access the same right to become a child of God given to them by Jesus Christ without distinction. The only thing that unites the people who believe in Jesus Christ together is that they believe in Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is an incredible, profound, radical truth, not just for the original context in first century Rome, but for our day to day, because human beings all over the world, we are still doing the same thing of dividing ourselves up into haves and have nots, and this racial group and that racial group, and this nation and that nation, and every which way we can think of, we are still dividing ourselves up, and we are still, even if we don't admit it to ourselves, prone to thinking about certain kinds of people as having closer access to God, having a more privileged right to God than others. And that is exactly what John is speaking against here. He is saying that no one has more privilege, no one has more of a right to God than anyone else. That the right to become a child of God comes from the sovereign hand of Jesus himself, and it is given to all without qualification who believe in him. The first century church was the most radical community on the planet, and the church today continues, despite our many failures at living out this truth, to be the most radical community on earth. Sociologists will tell you that there is no group more diverse than the Christian church around the world. Language, race, education, wealth, you name it, Christianity is by far and away the most diverse group on the planet, and it is going to continue to become more and more that way over time as God continues to fulfill the words spoken here in John 1.12, to all who believe. 
Now for you and me, my friends, the message is clear. As individual believers in Christ, we need to repent and ask God for forgiveness whenever we either by our thoughts or our actions show preference for someone in terms of who has access to God and who doesn't, who can become a believer and who can't, who is someone we should pray for and someone we shouldn't pray for because there's just no way that person would ever come to Jesus. Whenever we have these kinds of thoughts or we act in ways that demonstrate these thoughts, we have fallen short of what God himself has declared to be true, that all who believe in him, who receive Jesus, he gives them the right to become children of God. It is a radical truth that that radically reorients the way we look at people. And Paul himself speaks to this radical change in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When he says, we no longer look at people according to the flesh. Instead, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ is reconciling us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul here is saying that we no longer look at any human being according to the flesh, but rather we see them as potential recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ, and we as the ambassadors of that good news. We are to share the good news of Christ to any and all as we have opportunity without qualification or distinction. And we are to be embracing a church community that is as diverse as the people who name Jesus around us. That is our call. And to the degree that the church, broadly speaking, has failed to live this out, we certainly should repent and acknowledge our need for the grace of God that we have been saved by faith and is only and our failings only point to the inexplicable nature of the gospel that God could love a people such as us who fall sh- so far short of the ideals and the truths that he has given us what a radical truth god is the sovereign over all jesus is sovereign giver of salvation to all who believe And now finally, the third radical truth is this, and we see it in verse 13. You see, John wants to make clear what he's already implied in verse 12, that salvation is the work of God and not ours by negating any possible human origin to becoming a child of God. And so this is the third radical truth, that nothing we do contributes to or is the source of our salvation, that salvation is solely the work of God. And so he goes through three categories of essentially human procreation and denies that any of them have anything to do with becoming a child of God. And verse 13, he says, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. Now, we don't need to get too hung up on the distinct characteristics of each of these three categories he lists, but I do think that there is some idea that we can see here of of distinction in these three. The first one 
of not by blood is a reference to ethnicity. That is not it has nothing to do with your ethnic group that you belong to. That that is a source of your becoming a child of God. Now again, this would have been first and foremost a radical truth for Jews who had corrupted the understanding of the covenant that they had a special relationship with God. They had corrupted that teaching in the Old Testament to think that just being a Jewish person is what made you part of God's people. When it was in their scriptures themselves that they have that pointed the way to faith. Yes, they have access to God in a way that a non-Jewish person didn't by nature, that they receive all the scriptures that other peoples living in other parts of the world don't receive. So yes, they have these privileges that God has done things in the life of their nation that he hasn't done in other nations. But what, what Paul was saying, what all the other prophets said in the Old Testament was the point of these privileges was not to deny the role of faith in salvation, but was rather to bring them to faith. The point of God's work among the Israelite people was to bring them to faith. Their forefather, the the one from whom the Jewish people by blood descend, is Abraham. And what, and this is Paul, what does the scripture say? That Abraham himself believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The prophets amply speak of faith as being the, the what brings people to salvation. And yet by Jesus' day, the Jews had corrupted their own text and thought that it was simply a matter of being by Jewish blood that gave you a right to be a child of God. And so John certainly here rebukes that teaching. And Jesus himself, in his climactic opposition to the Jewish leaders in chapter 8, he speaks of this very issue. And this is the Jews speaking. He says that they answered him, they answered Jesus, and they said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And then Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You, the Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus himself powerfully rebukes this corrupted understanding in the Jewish culture at the time that it was simply by being a blood descendant of Abraham that gave them the right to consider themselves part of God's people. And Jesus says, no, God isn't your father. Satan is your father. Because your father is your, 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 your spiritual father is that who guides you because you are slaves of sin. And when you look at me, God in the flesh, this is Jesus speaking, when you look at me, God before you, you hate me. How else can you explain that than that you actually 
are of your father, Satan. It's a powerful rebuke against this idea that simply being a blood descendant of Abraham makes you part of God's people. No matter what, no matter what blood is in you, if you hate God, you are not part of his people. And so here John rebukes that idea, but it goes beyond Jews because all throughout history and even today, we still have this idea that that there are certain ethnicities that are closer to God, certain ethnicities that have inherited, that inherit a legacy of faith. And John rebukes those ideas. There is only one thing and one thing only that unites all those who are God's people, and that is faith that they are all the people that have come to Jesus, believed in him, and received him. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Now this is a reference simply to to sexual intercourse. Will of the flesh meaning to a a man and woman getting together and, and having sex and the children that come of that. And John's saying, this is, this is not how God's children come. And Jesus himself, again, will, will speak about this issue in a couple of chapters when he's talking with Nicodemus. And he says, uh, for a man to be part of God's kingdom, a part of God's family, he must be born again. That this is the work of the Spirit. And Nicodemus asked him some questions. I won't jump too much into that detail now, but this is a consistent teaching throughout John's gospel, that it is not enough simply to be born in the flesh to become a child of God. You have to be born again by the Spirit. And then the final category says, nor the will of man. Now, I take this to to refer to the will of a man to produce offspring in his line, in his family line. Look, life was short back then. And men naturally wanted to extend their family line to have offspring that would continue on their family tradition and their family legacy, and so they would have sex to do that. That was a goal for men in the ancient world, and it's, some men would say it's a goal today too, to have, to have children that will pass on the family line. Now John says that also, none of, the, none of that has anything to do with becoming a child of God. So nothing that might be related to human procreation has anything to do with becoming a child of God. He goes from the most broadest term possible, ethnicity, then just down to sexual intercourse in general, and then down to a man wanting to have offspring to continue continue the family legacy. And John says none of this has anything to do with being a child of God. He says a child of God is someone who is born of God. And this is, as I spoke to earlier, that John speaks to the triune Godhead. God the Father wills, God the Son enacts or does, and the Spirit applies. Anyone who comes to faith in Christ does so because God brings it about. Faith in God is the product of God's work, of God calling us out and giving us new life in Christ. Salvation is the work of God. This is a radical truth, and it shatters, sadly, any uh, so much of the history of the church where we have sought to define Christianity and being God's people along ethnic or human lines or human organizations or human institutions. God will work to produce people who are his children, who belong to his family, and our job is to cooperate with God's work, which is to do that work without distinction to anything in, in human nature or human work or human origin. These are three radical truths, and I hope you see that if you, if you unpack them and you look at them and you think about them, they radically change 
what kind of faith we have, what our faith looks like and how we live it out. It changes our view of God. It changes our view of who has access to God and who are God's people. And it changes our view of of how we see God at work in the world. These two verses are all about the centrality of God in salvation and seeing that most clearly in John's context and in the gospel in and through the work of Christ who came for us. And that's exactly the verse we'll get to next week, John 1.14. But let me close with this. Friends, it is hard in our sinful flesh to get this vision of God. We are so tempted by so many things and for so many reasons and in so many ways to deny these truths in our own life, in our own experience. And yet, when we grab onto them, they will produce a life of seeing God at work and of seeing God in a way that is so transformative and is exactly what we want. I hope and I pray that wherever you are today, you hear John's message to you, that God is the Lord and Savior of your life. The the centrality of your life is all about Jesus, and that you know no matter who you are, you can come to God. He will receive you. He will give you life in Christ, and all he asks of you is that you believe and that we cooperate with God and we don't look to human distinctions or human activity as that which produces God's people, but rather God's activity producing God's people, and we are simply participants in His work. Friends, I hope wherever you are today, this message has encouraged you. Let me close this in prayer. God, I thank you that your word to us speaks of so many powerful truths. I pray you'd apply them to our hearts. You'd transform our minds and you'd help us to be grounded in your word that we may more fully and readily give our lives to you and worship you and see you for who you are in all your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.